right, well, grab your Bibles this morning if you would. We're in uh, part seven of Discovering Antioch and more clearly discovering what kind of Christian we're going to be so that we can identify what kind of church Antioch Church is going to be. The phrase conscious Christianity really defines what this segment of the series is about. Are you a conscious Christian? Are you a conscious Christian? Do you know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? And are you growing in your understanding? Are you growing in your uh, conviction? Are you growing in your knowledge of truth, in your marriage to truth? All of those things uh, is what we are referring to when we talk about becoming a conscious Christian, moving from just unconscious, haphazard, uh, a lackadaisical approach to life to a very conscious, aware, focused, intentional pursuit of the things of God as it relates to engaging with our culture and bringing God's kingdom here into the earth. Very, very important uh, as it relates to us determining what kind of church Antioch Church is going to be for the next thousand years. Should the Lord return or should the Lord not return? (laughs) Should the Lord tarry? Yes. Book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn there with me if you would in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, don't be embarrassed. We'll put that scripture on the screen. But if you do have your Bible, I encourage you to look in your Bible, not just rely on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul is admonishing his young student, his young son in the faith, Timothy. And he says this, he says, Although, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The pillar and the foundation of the truth. This series is resting upon a presupposition. It's resting upon a belief, it's resting upon a spiritual agenda that the church is what the Bible says it is, and that is the church, we, the people of God, are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The truth of who Jesus was and is, the truth of God's ways, the truth of God's laws, Because we believe according to scripture in John 8, 32, that if we will live our lives according to truth, there's freedom. Not only on the personal level, but there's freedom on the societal level. There's freedom on the macro level. We believe that nations, we believe that governments, we believe that educational systems, we believe that economic systems, that they operate in freedom to the degree that they operate according to the truth of God's word. We believe that. That is our stated presupposition. Unabashedly, unashamedly, we believe that where a people group will live according to truth, they will experience freedom. We believe that where marriages operate according to the truth of God's word, they will experience freedom in their marriage. Believe that. Every area of your life, we have an invitation to live in freedom according to the word of God. And the church is to be the pillar of that truth. We are to be the foundation of truth for the culture. One of the responsibilities for the church 
throughout all of history, the responsibility of the church has been to serve the culture, serve the society by educating the society. This is who God is. These are what God's ways are. This is what God says. These are what his standards are. These are what his laws are. This is the way that we serve the culture because to the degree that we disciple a nation in the laws and the truth of God, to that degree, a nation can flourish and prosper and be successful. We believe that according to scripture. So that is one of the responsibilities and functions upon the church that is to educate the culture, the society, in the truth of who God is and in the truth of God's ways, the truth of God's word. That is our hope, that is our aim, that is our direction as we set the footing and set the foundation of Antioch Church. We will be a house that is married to this responsibility to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth for this generation and for generations to come. Last week, for those of you who are new with us today, we've been walking through this beautiful grid that David created for us. Thank you so much for doing that, David. Appreciate your work and your initiative here. And um, I encourage you to take this and you can listen to our podcast and follow along, but just to bring you up to speed, we're down at the very bottom category where it talks about our approach to scripture. Last week, we were on the, uh, uh, the second category there, on the, on the left-hand side, truth is. Under the bracket approach to scripture, we looked at truth is. We talked about last week that the cultural Christian's approach to truth is relative. We explained what relativism means. We talked about why that's so important, that we be a people that understand that truth is absolute, truth is objective, truth is independent. We also talked about the consumer Christian's approach to truth. They say truth is personal. This is the postmodern's cry. The postmodern's mantra is experience is truth. And my experience uh, becomes for me my ultimate truth. Today we're going to talk about the convenient, the crisis, and hopefully the kingdom Christian's definition of truth. When the Lord moves like he does, then he takes time from me. That's a joke, guys. Okay, thank you. All right, let's take a look at our uh, convenient Christian. What, what they say truth is, they say truth is difficult. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would. We're gonna look at two very important passages of scripture that relate to this, and we'll unpack this just a little bit, and we'll move forward quickly. Luke 18, book of Luke, chapter 18. We're gonna read quite a bit of verses today. We're gonna look at verse 18 through 27. We're talking about the convenient Christian and their definition of truth. Remember, the convenient Christian says that uh, Christianity is about comfort. It's about ease. It's about how can I get as much as I can get with as little investment as I can put in. It's the, it's the, the trendy, it's the faddish approach. It's the uh, big promises, big gains, little investment approach to Christianity. Okay, so they say truth, truth is too difficult. Luke 18, verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Verse 20, he says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, don't lie. 
You shall honor your father and mother. Verse 21, all these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Jesus is measuring the guy out. He says, okay, all right, I, I, see, I see where you're coming from. I see what you're after here. You wanna know how you can inherit eternal life with as little as possible. So here's what Jesus replies to him. Many of you know the story. Jesus said to him, well, you still lack one thing. Sell everything that you have. Give it away to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. You'll experience the kingdom in a way that you've never experienced before. Then you'll begin to taste what you're after. You follow me this morning. And then look what happens here. I've always been fascinated with this because if I'm reading this passage correctly, there could have been 13 disciples, which messes with everybody's prophetic numerology in the number 12. But 12 is the number for government. Well, according to Jesus, he could have had 13 because Jesus invites this guy. He invites this guy. We don't know what his name is, but he could have been up there. He could have been one of the guys in Acts chapter three that were raising people you know, from their sick bed after 28 years of being crippled. He could have been one of the guys who authored scriptures. Think about this. This young guy had the opportunity to go up into uh, the upper room with Jesus and break bread with Jesus. He had the opportunity to be there with Jesus when he was raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. He had that opportunity to be one of the guys who distributed the 5,000, uh, the pieces of loaves and fish to the 5,000. He had that opportunity because Jesus invited him, come with me, come follow me, come be a part of my school, come be a part of my friends. He could have been there in John 15 when Jesus says, I don't just call you servants anymore. I'm changing the dynamic of our relationship and now you can be my friend. And this kid chose his money over the truth that appeared very difficult. He traded an opportunity to be discipled by the master for stuff. Stuff that burns, stuff that is gone stuff that is temporal. Take a look right here at the rest of the story. Verse 23, when the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and he said, how hard, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, don't look at this now just in terms of rich. Look at this in terms of a mindset that says, I want to get everything that you have to offer, but I want to get it on my terms. I want to get everything that you can give to me, but I want to do it the way that I want to do it, and I want to do it for as little as I can possibly manage to afford. And that's why Jesus says how difficult, how hard it is for the convenient Christian to enter the kingdom of God. Think about that. It is difficult for the convenient-minded follower of Christ. It is difficult for the person who does not want to give anything but wants to receive everything and wants everything now. It's very difficult for them to inherit the kingdom of God is what Jesus said. And that's because the convenient Christian's approach to truth is that's, that's difficult. That is very hard for me. Take a look, if you would, at the book of John, chapter 6. 
John chapter six, very familiar passage for those of you who are in our life group community. We discussed this a couple of weeks ago. Wonderful selection of scripture that Pastor Doug pulled out for us. Beginning in verse 53 of the book of John chapter six, Jesus said to them, very truly I say, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now we know on the other side of this that Jesus is speaking of spiritual things. We know on the other side of this that Jesus was gonna go to a cross, he was gonna lay down his life for all of humanity and when he was speaking of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he wasn't speaking about some weird form of Christian cannibalism. We know on the other side of this that Jesus was saying, unless you allow me to be the source of your spiritual life, me, who I am, not what other people say about me, not what the culture says about me, not even what you think about me, but if you will allow me to be your source of life on the here and now and then forever, he goes, then you'll be a part of the kingdom of God. Let's keep reading here, verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. I am your spiritual sustenance. I am your source of life and living. Verse 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. They abide in me. They've married themselves to me. They have found something that is secure, that is lasting and I will abide with them. Verse 57, just as the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Here's a good question for us to ask ourselves. What are you feeding on? What are you feeding your mind on? What are you feeding your spirit on? What are you feeding your flesh on? What are you deriving your spiritual life and vitality and sustenance from? Is it the ideas around you? Or is it the truth of who Jesus is? And not just truth from an intellectual standpoint, the truth of who he is spiritually. You can feed on who Jesus is spiritually. He says, I am the bread of life. In the same way that we wake up every morning and we feed our natural bodies, we can feed our spirits on the reality of an intimate communion, thriving relationship with the living God. That's what Jesus is saying right here. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and they died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? This is a hard teaching. This is a hard teaching that we are to get our life and our sustenance from you and you alone That's difficult because that implies something very profound. It implies death to self. It implies laying down our will. It implies laying down our desires. It implies complete and utter dependence birthed out of love. It implies, Jesus, you have the final say. It implies, Jesus, without you, I am completely and utterly hopeless and I cannot make it. They said, this is hard. Because the human soul has been conditioned towards independence. 
The human soul has been trained towards self-reliance and rebellious independence. And when Jesus says, make me your bread, they said, this is hard saying. It's very difficult here. This is where the rubber meets the road. What was happening here in John chapter six, Jesus was separating the crowd from the real followers. In fact, earlier in this chapter, Jesus mentions, he says, the only reason why you guys are here is because you saw a miracle that blew your mind. You saw that I took a couple of pieces of bread and a couple of pieces of fish and I fed over 15,000 people and now you wanna see more of that. And what I'm telling you is that I am the bread of life. And what I'm telling you is you can do that as well. if you will trade your convenience for the difficulty of laying your life down before me and letting me be your bread. And to the degree that you let me be your bread, you can be a distributor of bread to the nations too. You can be a distributor of bread to the nations You can be a distributor of bread to the business community. You can be a distributor of bread to young men, to young women. And you can be, you were called to be a bread distributor to the degree that you make Jesus your bread and his blood your drink. Now watch what happens here. This is so good. Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus says, does this offend you? Does this offend you? Does truth offend you? Now, let me just pause right here. We may go back to this passage of scripture, but truth by its very nature offends. It's important for you to understand this. The secularist chafes against truth. The secularists, the humanists, they fight truth vehemently. And why is that? Why do they hate truth so much? Because truth in its purest form is independent of man's relative reasoning and their subjective experience, and truth implies a standard of accountability. Truth implies you must change. If truth is truly to be truth, in order for us to allow it to be truth, we must change where there are areas of our life that do not reflect truth, that do not not conform to truth. Truth, by its very nature, presupposes you must conform to me. You think about that. And that is why sinful, soulish humanity hates truth. Because sinful, soulish humanity hates God. That's what scripture says. Colossians 1.21, man, we were alienated from God, enemies with God. Now, pause right here. I want you to think about this. In Genesis chapter three, turn there with me if you would in your Bibles in Genesis chapter three. By the way, those of you today who are joining us for the very first time, I just wanna welcome you. So pleased that you're here with us today. I believe that the Lord has brought you here by divine design. I believe that you are here not by accident. I believe that God is calling you. I believe he's drawing you. I believe that you have an appointment with destiny. I believe that God knows your name and he knows everything about you and he is wooing you and drawing you to himself. There is an opportunity and invitation for your life to be radically beautiful and forever changed. And I just wanna just welcome you today.
Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve are in a garden, first man, first woman. A little bit of background here for those of you who are not familiar with this story. The first man and the first woman that God created, he put them in a garden to tend that garden, to care for that garden, to protect that garden. And there were a couple of boundaries that he put. Truth will always have boundaries. Truth will all, truth presupposes boundaries. It, it does. Truth presupposes a right and a wrong. So where there is a right and a wrong, you will always have a boundary and a limitation. This is right, this is wrong. You can do this, you can't do this. If you choose this, you will be blessed, you will have life. If you choose this, you will not be blessed, you will not have life. Truth presupposes boundaries. We don't like boundaries. Don't tell me what to do. My little son says this to my daughter, you're not the boss of me. And then sometimes she'll tell him certain things like, daddy said, don't do this. And he'll go, you're not my mommy. Because <laughs> sinful humanity bucks against boundaries. Sinful humanity does not want accountability. And I'm gonna show you where that happens here in Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat? What is he doing? He's questioning the veracity. He's questioning the truthfulness of the boundary that God put in place. Is it really true that if you, if you break this presupposed boundary over here, is it really true that there'll be consequences? Have you ever heard that argument before? Is it really true that if you go there, drink that, smoke that, do that, do this? Is it really true? Remember we talked about last week, oh, I'd, one of the, um, the arguments of humanism. Well, you tell me that there's consequences and I started doing this and I don't see any consequences at all. So apparently this must be totally fine. It's not biblical thinking. It's the thinking of the enemy. Listen to his questions. Did God really say that you must not eat this? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. What is he doing? He's now questioning the consequences of the boundary. You can transgress this boundary of truth and there'll be no consequences. Sin will always try to convince you that you can have your own way without any punishment. It is the brilliant lie of sin. You can choose your path and it will lead you to where you wanna go and there will absolutely be no negative ramifications for it whatsoever. Listen, the enemy's not very creative. He uses the same strategy for us over and over and over again. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What is he saying here? He's saying, you don't need God to know truth. You can discover truth yourself. He's saying, truth is in you. Truth is not God, truth is in you. You are the creator, you are the author, you are the determiner of what truth is, not him. You don't need him. In fact, he's just trying to control you. Law and morals and ethics and morality and values and those things are just, they're, they're just some Christian's idea to control and limit your freedom. Pay attention to language because freedom can only be found when boundaries. And it's been proven. 
And freedom can only be discovered in truth. Parents, let me admonish you this morning, if you're trying to raise children without boundaries in the hope that you're raising free children, it will come back to bite you. It will come back to bite you. Yesterday, my son wanted to play with a paint set because my daughter's into art and she plays with paints. And so we decided we're gonna go ahead and let you play with a paint set. A little reluctantly, but we went ahead and did it. And uh, Tracy was taking care of twins and I was taking care of some other things in the house, I think preparing some of this. And I came up and I, in our freshly painted walls, I found a beautiful splash of red. Nice little contrast, nice little cream beige taupe with a little red here. And I went, I, where'd this come from? Who, I don't, where'd this come from? And just Kenya just, he knew. I said, did I say that you could paint on my walls? No. Who told you that you could paint on my walls? I did. Oh, that's a good answer. <laughs> that's a really good answer. And I sat down and as I was talking with Kenya, I said, son, listen, you need to understand that at this stage of your life, at four years old, Although you believe that you have the wisdom and the maturity to make good decisions. I'm sharing this with him. Although you believe that you're smart enough to know what to do with certain resources, although with everything inside of you, here's what he said. He said, I was making it prettier. It's totally what he said. It was, it was adorable. It was adorable. He goes, daddy, I was just making it prettier but this presupposes that you know what beauty is. And this presupposes that you know what the purpose of that wall is. And this presupposes that you have the full measure of authority to make that decision on your own validity and not mine. This presupposes, are you following me today? We have to understand that as smart as we think we are, we are not mature enough or wise enough to be able to determine what truth is for every situation on the earth. And here's the beautiful thing, we don't have to. Here's where we've been duped. We've been duped now with the responsibility of creating something we were never intended or designed to create. We now have the burden of responsibility to decipher something that we were never able to decipher apart from God, and that is truth. The convenient Christian says, this is difficult and it offends me. And my question to you today, church, as we move towards maturity is, does truth offend you? Because the lie here that the enemy sows into our hearts and minds is, if it offends you, it must not be true. Are you easily offendable? When truth comes your way, this is very natural, the, the unredeemed carnal place of man will fight with it. Remember, the mind justifies what the heart has chosen. Your carnality will always fight with truth. I'm just gonna give you a heads up. It will always seek to rationalize yourself out of the accountability of truth, no matter what it is. And when we get to the crisis, Christian, I'll show you that we will even use God talk to do this. Let me, let me, let me, just, let me just share something with you. Simply because you slap God's name on something does not make it true. Well, God told me. Well, that's funny because what God told you stands in direct contradiction to what God told all of us. 
In the book of Matthew chapter four, Jesus is being tempted by the enemy and he responds with the scripture and he says, man shall not live by God alone. And the enemy goes, oh, I see what game you're playing. I can, I can do that too. I can use scripture too to do what I want it to do. And so the enemy says, well, since we're using the scripture game, you know the Bible says that you can throw yourself off these mountains and angels will catch you and you'll not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus goes, you're such a fool. That's not even what it was talking about there. But when you want something badly enough and truth offends you badly enough, you'll even go to twisting truth. I was reading yesterday that the homosexual community has created not the King James Bible, but the Queen James Bible. The Queen James Bible. Why is that? Because when truth offends... Carnal humanity will look to change truth. Where truth becomes too difficult, we will look to manipulate truth. Do you get offended with truth? I'm not talking about uh, religious control or manipulate. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about just pure truth that is humbly submitted and given to you to say, think about this, examine this, Examine your path. Church, listen, we ought to aspire to be people who are constantly changing. You ought to go, you ought to presume now that for the rest of your days, you will be required to change. You ought to assume now that the rest of your days will be an incredible invitation for transformation and that requires difficult decisions. Ask yourself now, do I run from the offense of truth? Do I buck? Do I rebel? Do I argue with the offense of truth? Or do I say, Holy Spirit, show me truth, teach me truth. This hurts, but I count it an honor. I count it a joy. I count this a blessing that you are bringing truth to me. Do you know without truth, you can't change? Do you know without truth, you cannot grow? Do you know without truth, you can't please God. Without truth, you can't advance the kingdom. It is impossible. At the very best that you can do without truth is build your own kingdom in the name of God. And there's a story in Genesis 11 of people who did that. They built a huge tower in the name of God without truth. It was built on humanism. And God said, this is not good and I must destroy it. Truth implies authority Authority implies accountability. As I was getting ready this morning, the phrase came to my mind, truth was never intended to be convenient. Truth and convenience are oxymorons. Truth and convenience stand in direct opposition with one another because truth was never designed to be easy. Who, whoever has sold you a bill of easy Christianity, I want to apologize for them, but I want to challenge you today and say that Christianity was never intended to be an easy road. Scripture says in Matthew chapter seven, I'm bringing this down to a close, verse 13 through 14, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. 
and only a few find it. You know, the idea that many paths lead to heaven is a lie. The idea that whatever's right for you and good for you and true for you is good for you and that makes it true, that is a lie. And lies will lead to bondage. I feel like the Lord downloaded a couple poignant thoughts that I just wanna speak to you this morning and I'm gonna just, then I'm gonna wrap this up. Just because someone wins an argument does not mean they are right. Many of you may be very intimidated about having conversations relative to truth with those that are practicing agnostics, humanists, atheists, secularists, liberals, what have you. Listen, be at peace. They may argue you in circles. They may make a fool out of you. They may be right with every what seems like human logical point of the argument, but just because they win the argument does not mean that what they're saying is true. Be at peace. Marry yourself to truth. Not in a dogmatic way, not in a religious way, but in a humble, convicted, conscious Christian way, I am gonna be married to truth. Second thought is, it takes great courage in this hour to be a Christian. I commend you today for being followers of Jesus. More importantly than me commending you, heaven commends you for being a devout follower of Jesus. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, doesn't mean that you won't make mistakes, but you are here today because you're saying, I am pursuing growth in godliness. I want to be a man of truth. I want to be a woman of conviction. And I commend you today and heaven is standing at their feet and they're saying, you can do it, don't give up. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, blessed are the persecuted. Friends, you will be persecuted if you have not been already and it will continue and it will increase because truth invites persecution. Truth invites persecution. Scripture says in John chapter three, I believe it's verse 19, that the son of man came into the world and men rejected him because their hearts loved evil. And because their hearts did not want to change and conform to truth, they attacked truth. Truth invites persecution and it requires great moral courage. I wanna pray for you today that God would give you a surge of courage in your heart. Do you know where courage comes from? It comes from conviction. Do you know that reconditioning our mind to truth is a lot of hard work? I'm reading books today that I haven't read in years And it's hard work. It's hard work grappling with these concepts. It's hard work realizing how secular my mindset has been. It's very difficult work. It's hard work praying and asking God to teach me what truth is. It's very difficult work. You will not become people of truth haphazardly. It is not an automatic process. You don't accept Jesus into your heart and automatically understand truth, know truth, live truth, uh, have conviction, have conscience. That is not an automatic process. It is a deliberate, it is a methodical, it is a systematic, it is a rigorous and a disciplined process of conditioning our minds unto truth. You know, many of us think in Romans 12 where it says, don't be, tr- don't be conformed to this world, be transformed. Transformation is always difficult work. 
By the renewing of your mind, I always thought, well, if I just, you know, memorize a couple of healing scriptures and memorize a couple of prosperity scriptures, then man, I'm good. No, no. It means let you let the grooves of your mind, let the let the, the current of your mind, let the, 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 the canals of your mind, literally, God has to cut new paths into your mind on this, sir, is truth. And when you have a revelation of truth, you'll develop conscience. And when you develop conscience, you, after you choose truth over and over, you'll develop conviction. Conviction in this hour is what will get us through persecution. Conviction in this hour is what will enable us to have conversations and stand when everyone around us in the cultural tide is going the opposite direction. Conviction. And belief and conviction are not the same thing. The rubber meets the road. Your conviction turns, your, your belief turns into conviction when you're willing to be persecuted for your belief. When you're willing to live your belief when nobody else is watching. When you're willing to live your belief even though it may hurt you, that's when it has become a conviction. And let me just share something with you. Our neighbors, our friends, our, the, the people in our culture that do not know Christ, they are godless, they are anti-God, anti-Christ, they're people of conviction. I've li- I, 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 I am listening to their arguments. I, I, they, they are willing to be persecuted. They are willing to undergo major shame and rejection because they believe what their relative truth is, is truth. Are you a person of conviction? Are you a person of conviction? Are you a person who can stand for the truth as God defines truth? Or do you care more about what the people around you think? Do you know why David was able to defeat the giant? It's because he was a person of conviction. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I've heard almost every take on David and Goliath that there is. This young boy slayed a giant. Do you know how he slayed, you know why he slayed him? David said, why is this uncircumcised Philistine here defying the armies of the living God? What this should not be. This is wrong. This should not be. The people of God should not be cowering against the spirit of the age. And you know what David said? I'm gonna deal with this. You know what that's called? That's called conviction. Because everybody else in the army of Israel believed that this was wrong while they were cowering in their boots. But David, because he knew God intimately, because God had become his friend, because he developed a passionate conviction, birthed and married out of intimacy and devotion, he said, this is personal and this is not right. That's why David, despite his fear, I guarantee you he was afraid. But conviction will push you beyond fear. And I pronounce over you that you are a people of conviction. Stand with me to your feet this morning. At this rate, we'll finish this series in 2018. I'm not in a hurry. I want to be thorough.